Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Welcome to the first week of our fall season, which we are calling Atour Autumn. We've chosen four directors who have new movies coming out, and we're looking at their unique voices, styles, and themes by comparing one of their older films with one of their new releases. So like we did during the summer season, we're doing eight weeks of new episodes releasing every Friday starting today with Seven, the 1995 film screenplay by Andrew Kevin Walker, directed by David Fincher. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Okay, so uh, we're kicking off Autour Autumn. We're diving into David Fincher 7. I like this movie. Uh, I am a fan of Fincher, as listeners will know. And I feel like this is arguably his best movie. Like, I think there's a lot of things in here that I... There's just so much to talk about in terms of where it fits in Fincher's library, the evolution of his style. It's kind of crazy that this is his second feature film, like your second round out. You did seven. Um, I also love murder, like thriller mysteries. And this is just one of the greats. I remember watching it for the first time and being on the edge of my dorm bed, like couldn't believe what was happening on that tiny TV across from me uh, with like a bunch of other us. And like, it was my roommate that showed it to me and he was just like, it's going to blow your mind. You don't even know. You don't even know. <laughs> and he was right. Uh, it was amazing. And so I've revisited this movie many times. Uh, the style I love, the cinematography I love, but also the writing I really appreciate. And I went back and watched the lessons from the screenplay video that I made comparing this to True Detective and how their dark works that ultimately, in my opinion, have an optimistic like theme at the end. And I, I really like being able to track uh, Somerset's arc and that he does end up mm -hmm. in this place of like he's moved like one degree toward optimism or hope or just like worth trying uh, given all the horrific things that are experienced here. So I think there's just a, a ton of things to talk about and I'm excited to pull apart structure and character arcs and teaming up with a partner and all the things that that does to move you along those arcs uh, and style and cinematography and sound and music. And just, <laughs> we'll, be know, think, we'll be here all night. We'll be here all night. Anyway, so lots of things to talk about there. Uh, but I want to hear from you guys' thoughts on Seven. Brian, why don't you kick it off? Uh, sure. I, I, you know, I mentioned before my sort of way into um, movies was as a kid having a stack of VHSs that was like Labyrinth and Weekend at Bernie's and Temple of Doom and Return of the Jedi. And then as a teenager, you know, introducing this new stack into the mix, which was Rocky Horror Picture Show, Lost Highway, A Clockwork Orange, Natural Born Killers, and Seven, which is why I'm such a normal boy. Um, <laughs> All the nicest movies, nice people. Yeah. Doing nice and then I would things. still watch the other ones like in between. So it was just this sort of weird like <laughs> labyrinth and then Natural Born Killers. Um, and, uh, you know, it was definitely a blend of like, these are dark and taboo things. And, you know, I'm a 
gothy teenager, but it was also like, these are good movies. And I'm appreciating like these movies are all like, they're all like really thematically, I don't know if dense is the right word, but like movies that are just like, here is a thing we are saying. And that thing is very clear. And then if you want to, you can read further into what they're saying. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were there were stretches where I would probably watch like one of those movies a day. So I've seen like seven many, many times. It's pretty burned in my brain. You know, it opens with Nine Inch Nails. It closes with David Bowie. I mean, come on. Um, I mentioned uh, I mentioned our girl with the dragon tattoo episode that I love the dirty Fincher aesthetic um, from Seven and Fight Club, uh, even Alien 3, uh, the Perfect Circle video he directed, which I love. Um, and I wish it was still a thing he did once in a while, especially with serial killery type movies so we can talk about that in a few weeks um but uh but yeah i i love this movie and i think there's a really cool thematic conversation going on in this movie that is so obvious when you are you know 15 or whatever age i was um at the time uh but like is also then there's more to it when you want to kind of like really think about like what are they talking about in that bar scene and what are they talking about in that diner scene you know and and i think that there's I, I like a movie that just sort of has like a pretty clear theme right o- off the bat, but then it has like stuff you can kind of, you know, nibble at over the next several viewings. Also, my mom like loved this movie. She was like, this is my, my, my favorite movies. I was like, go mom. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. And so as you were referencing, David Fincher, for people that don't know, has a new film coming out, The Killer. Uh, of course, that's what it's called. <laughs> just not even bothering with like titles yeah. anymore right i was like googling it to like double check some things and i was like the killer the killer david fincher no i still need to be more specific which movie <laughs> am i trying to david fincher killer movie yeah but screenplay also by andrew kevin walker who wrote seven and so mm. i think it's gonna be really interesting to compare you know what these films are but style content themes lots of like direct comparisons that we'll be able to get into with looking at these two movies which i'm excited about nice um alex what's your relationship with this movie so i think i saw it in high school yeah i was not yet probably well versed enough in just filmmaking knowledge to to really grok what a well-made film it is i was just shocked i was just like (laughs) deeply disturbed deeply like scarred honestly from the the murders in this movie because it's not a normal murder movie this is some of the most horrific like situations you could possibly imagine you know put to screen and and described and talked about casually by police officers um and and i found it as disturbing or more so than like any horror movie i'd seen just because of the unfathomable like awfulness of each you know murder um and so that's really what my takeaway was when i first saw it was just that movie was screwed up and that was insane how like that's like a movie and they just showed that stuff and talked about that stuff and that's that's what it was so you know i was not brian with that stack of dvds as like you know (laughs) uh, a young teen i was i was more uh, innocent i guess and this movie really like rattled me so honestly i kind of didn't return to it for many years because I was just like, you know what? Yeah, I, I'm sure it's well made, but like it's just kind of gross and like oh, awful. 
But then, you know, Michael always talked about it being this movie he loves and it's so gorgeous and it's so good and the characters are so good. I'm like, really? I, I don't remember it being like that kind of a movie. But then I did rewatch it. I mean, I, I don't know when the second time I watched it was, but um, definitely after meeting Michael and hearing him rave about it and realizing, oh, wait, yeah, these characters are so well written and there's so much going on here beyond the shocking, you know, crime scenes. And I every time I watch it now, I appreciate it more. And I and I've I'm happy to keep having reasons to return to it because I now am seeing what a beautifully well-constructed film it is, aside from the shock, the shocking memories burned into my mind that I don't ever really want to be there. It's it's happened, they're burned in there, and now I'm seeing the rest of it, and it is a really good movie. And I agree, Michael. I think it is one of Fincher's best because it does have more. I don't know, it was more like a beating heart at the center than a lot of his more super slick, gorgeous, but kind of cold films. Um, and, and I and every time I watch it, I'm, I'm reminded just, yeah, just how much, like you said, I love the way it's written. And I love the characters. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Like, you know, like you, Brian, I watched it over and over again. So, like, I, I remember being like kind of shocked by it, but I think I was naive enough as a young person to not get all of the murders like it went over my head uh, and I was more swept up in the filmmaking and so I feel like I haven't really had that like shocking experience until this last time that I watched it knowing that everybody else in this podcast was also watching it and just like Mm -hmm. seeing it through different eyes and being like Oh my god! Uh, so <laughs> we we had the we had the reverse chronologies of our of our interpretations of the film. We yeah. Benjamin buttoned our seven experience here. <laughs> <laughs> Another Fincher. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Okay, Trisha, what about you? So you guys finally made me watch seven. Um, <laughs> you win. Here we are. No, so I had seen this movie in like bits and pieces. Basically, I'd seen it on TV, like large stretches of it on TV. And in fact, the second half is like I've seen a few times. Now, mm. I had seen it on TV, which means I had seen it edited for TV. But like knowing the broad strokes, basically starting with the sort of midpoint sequence chase where they go to John Doe's apartment from there to the end. I had seen several times the beginning. I was less familiar with and really enjoyed this time for the most part, other than the like, you know, the shock value, darkness, horror parts of it, which I simply didn't watch very closely, which is fine. Seeing it now for the first time ever from start to finish in its completeness, I do feel like it suffers or I suffer a little bit from like the pop culture, like uh saturation of parts of it. Um, like it's hard for me to watch the last, you know, the climactic scene without right, being like, Oh, yeah. it's so uh, very acting. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. Ooh, um, Brad Pitt is definitely doing very acting. At, yeah, at he is. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, and, and yes, yeah. It's like, I don't know if there's a way to say some of these lines in like a normal way. Like it's, you know, kind of borderline melodrama. But overall, I do like I agree with everything that you guys are saying about the writing. The the um, the places where it deviates from really familiar like crime thriller beats are, I think, are incredibly triumphant and, and fascinating. And yeah, it just it has this pacing to it 
that I think is really interesting. It spends so much time with the characters in the first half. And then the second half, it just like, it stops being about the murders completely pretty much because it's just about this like race to the finale as the characters are being pushed and pushed toward the crisis. And it just, it escalates so rapidly um, and then has such a satisfying conclusion, uh, melodrama aside, that I I don't know, it's really great. Um, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. And it was compared a lot to Silence of the Lambs at the time. And I will say it's no Silence of the Lambs for me. Uh, but I did really enjoy it. Uh, and thank you guys actually for making me sit down and press start at the beginning and watch it all the way through until the end, even if I spent some time watching it from like the edge of my screen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I owe you guys a princess bride, at least. No. I've, 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 I've said it aloud. He said it on said camera. It. <laughs> it's gonna have it. Yeah. That's, that is my penance. Michael, as you wished us. <laughs> God, <laughs> ugh, I regret everything. <laughs> As we kick off our Autour Autumn season, I can think of no one better to sponsor our show than Mubi. Mubi is a streaming service where each and every film is hand-selected by expert curators who are passionate about elevating great cinema. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs from all around the world, there is always something new to discover on Mubi. For example, right now you can dive into their collection, Watch If You Dare, Halloween Horror. They write of this collection, From the beginnings of film history, audiences have been drawn to scary movies like Moth to a Flame, finding in the shadowy space of the cinema some of their darkest fears and suspicions come terrifyingly alive. This Halloween, plunge into the heart of darkness with some striking cinematic horrors. And if you're not in the mood for a scary movie, you can browse their library to find works by a number of auteurs, including, for example, Lars von Trier, whose films Melancholia and Dogville, among several others, are available on Mubi. With a 30-day free trial, you can experience Mubi's library of films for yourself. And by signing up, you're also supporting Beyond the Screenplay and helping us continue to make new episodes. So why not try Mubi today for free? Just visit movie.com slash beyond the screenplay to start your free trial and discover a world of great cinema. That's M-U-B-I.com slash beyond the screenplay. Thank you to Movie for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Yeah, we'll we'll get into this more, but the the pacing, like you're saying, is is really interesting. And I think that's almost why, again, watching it the first time as a kid, not a kid, but in early college, the murders on the back half, like I sort of stopped tracking because they yeah. almost happen so quickly. Like in the first half, I'm like, okay, there's going to be seven. Okay. So that one was this one. And then mm. that's on that day. And then the back half, like kind of the last four. Just sort of spins out of control. Right. Mm. And so it, it is interesting. That is one of the things that makes me go, hmm, every time I watch it, the like the Somerset calling in the FBI library ex machina in the middle point to like, I don't know, something in there feels a little bit convenient. But for me, those are kind of the two minor bumps that that I do find in, in this movie. Okay, so Fincher, like lots of style, lots of things to talk about. But this is, you know, one of the reasons we're doing Autour Autumn is to sort of be able to investigate 
what is an auteur in, in film and what does that mean? And why are we looking at these filmmakers for that reason? Um, and so we're going to dust off our, our film school hats really quick and talk about auteur theory. Trisha, you're the smart one. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so, you know, I, I'm anxious to hear from you guys because I feel like sometimes you are more tuned into style things than me, but, uh, so auteur theory. And so you'll be able to speak to a lot of that, but, um, auteur theory basically started with the French new wave and it was sort of this idea that a director in particular, even more than a screenwriter is said to be like the author of the film, right? That the, the director puts his own stamp on um, the films that he is making. And uh, but basically, this person touches every part of it. And so we can look at all of the films from a specific director and see like signature things emerging, signature stylistic things um, and like thematic things as well. And that the what a director brings of his personality into the film is worth studying, basically. Um, and it's funny because, you know, back then that was kind of a radical idea that the director, like, we should consider all the things a director has made or that the director is like an artist, essentially, um, that we should, you know, study all of his subsequent films through the lens of his previous films. Um, that was pretty radical idea, but I feel like it's so common now, or like at least among uh, people in film circles that it's kind of baked into the way that we think about film, where we sort of have an, a better understanding of the role a director plays in a lot of ways now, um, not across the board, but. Yeah. There, there's a weird sort of, I think, parabolic effect that happened where in the really early days of film, that was what it was. It right. was Fritz Lang and Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. It was like, they were just going to go make their movie. And then mm -hmm. that's what you were going to see. And then we got in, especially in the States, we got into the sort of Hollywood machine where it's like this person right. over here is going to write a screenplay. They're going to send it to the studio. That studio is going to then hire a director over here to come and make the movie. So it felt like movies were studio things, studio products, you know, and then around the time of Hitchcock, which then also French New Wave was happening and also Kurosawa, you know, like it was yeah. happening. It was that and, um, you know, like spaghetti Western. It was then it sort of became like, oh, now the director is getting more hands on and actually crafting something that you're feeling like, oh, I'm going to go see the next insert director's name here movie because that I, I sort of have some expectation of what that means. Yeah. Yeah. To be clear, it was a while before that, like the, this study um, or the thing that we're talking about with the uh, cachet that directors would have, that was not really like common in sort of the way that lay people would experience movies. Like it was very much more of like this artistic sort of idea. Um, and in fact, the original auteurs thought of Hitchcock as being kind of like a low, <laughs> like a low art director, basically, because he was making things for the masses uh, instead of being, you know, Truffaut or whoever. But I think it is interesting now that 
when you look at films by Hitchcock, which we just talked about Rear Window um, on our Patreon episode, when you look at films by him and some of the other American auteurs, they really are as stylistically distinctive as anything else that was coming out, uh, you know, from these other directors around the world. And so, you know, we're going to be talking about some American directors also. And I would think that, you know, now the that separation of like, is Fincher a man of the people like or does he make art? I think is, you know, a moot point at this point, because our auteurs now are making mainstream films that are getting huge releases. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah, that's a great summary and overview. There's a, a documentary that Alex edited called These Amazing Shadows, which is a really interesting uh, kind of history, almost like a film school 101 uh, film that goes over the history of film and kind of how it moved from, you know, studios make movies to be products to be sold. Like they're just like toys on a shelf. Like that's how we think of them. When they're done, we burn the film. We don't need it anymore. <laughs> and then the uh, the process of like realizing, no, these are works of art that need to be preserved. Um, it's a, I don't know. It was really fun yeah. watching you make that movie, Alex. Yeah, the documentary is about the National Film Registry, which is uh, something the Library of Congress does, where they choose a certain amount of films every year that you know are are now deemed to be historically, you know, uh, significant, culturally significant to America, should be preserved for all time in their original form, you know with you know on film or whatever um i think it's funny thing is star wars is on that list and i think empire strikes back as well and i wonder if they've ever gotten hold of the original because the mandate is the original release like film Mm. reel needs to be preserved um but but yeah in the documentaries you know some of them some of the interviewees were saying uh there's a real problem where there's big gaps in kind of our preservation of film because of that yeah, that that consideration of film as like a disposable product. We didn't have this, you know, the giant Blu-ray collection behind Brian. You know, it was like a movie went to theaters, it was seen, it was entertainment, and then it goes kind of, you know, it, highly flammable yeah. film stock gets put into some like hot warehouse and it like spontaneously combusts. Um, and so it's it's interesting to think about how yeah, film moved from disposable entertainment to yeah, we have people with massive collections for all time of their Blu-rays. And now here's my question. Is seven on that list of the historically significant movies that needs to be preserved? Oh, we should look it up. <laughs> yeah, it's usually usually it's listed on Wikipedia if it is. Nice. Um, like on the on the movie web website. Um, but it's interesting. Something that came up, you know, in the documentary also was we're in this weird time of now digital film. And actually, is this going to all be preserved or is this all going to go away as soon as Netflix changed their catalog or, um, you know, those Blu-rays, you know, melt or whatever? Like there, there's a new problem of this. Everything is only existing in bits. And is that going to last or is that going to be gone as soon as our technology changes? So it's yeah, interesting, interesting moment for film preservation because it actually might be, might be easier to guarantee a really well-preserved film reel will be watchable in a hundred years. Yeah. You can't guarantee that Blu-ray will be. Yeah. Yeah. Seven is not on, on the wow. national. Oh, you really missed a the mark there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jurassic Park is. <laughs> Jurassic Park. Oh, thank God. They got, they got something. Right. <laughs> they have some good taste. <laughs> but yeah. So, so yeah, so that's kind of 
quick overview of auteur theory. And I feel like it's you know, the reason why we can say like a Wes Anderson film is a Wes Anderson film. And everyone's like, oh, I go. And that means like a Wes Anderson film. There are expectations and how it's presented and like even the subject matter that you kind of have. Well, and in this case, I think it's interesting. A lot of the auteurs that we're going to talk about this season are writer directors. Mm -hmm. And Fincher is a writer as well. But he is not the person who wrote this movie, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, well, and I feel like he doesn't, I know he likes to collaborate with writers a lot, like the mm -hmm. social network making of that I've talked about before is so fascinating because you're watching David Fincher give notes to Aaron Sorkin, uh, which, you know, just, those are Intense. big personalities in a room. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of a, a peek at that process of like having a hand in the narrative, but also not like overwriting the script that like has been provided. Um, and so it's also interesting. That's kind of one of the questions that kind of comes up in auteur theory is like, yeah, what like you're saying the the writer isn't necessarily the author of the film, but like, why not? And how much of, you know, a film is the narrative versus how it's being executed and all these things. It's really interesting. We could talk about it for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, Finch is a really interesting example to start with because he, he's not, credited as a writer on any of his movies. Um, but he obviously is super involved in it, you know, like, like the social, I mean, we can watch the, the lessons from the screenplay, uh, social network video, uh, video essay, as you were just talking about, Michael with like, you can see those clips of him being like, we need to do this. And I think this line should be this. So it's like, he is co-crafting the screenplay with the screenwriter. And then obviously crafting the movie that is resultant of that screenplay, but he is not sitting down and writing a script from scratch the way that a lot of the auteurs we, we might think of have. Yeah. yeah. And I heard now all of the stuff about seven strikes me as being like, just sort of like legendary Hollywood stuff about the original spec script. And then it has the like current ending with the head in the box and then they made him change it. And then the original got accidentally sent to Fincher and then Fincher only wanted to make the head in the box version. I don't know how much of that is true, but if it is, that's another interesting thing that uh, directors can do is um, if they're not writing it themselves, they can go to bat for choices that the screenwriter is making that the studio might otherwise try to change, mm -hmm. which seemed like it was the case here, or at least according to all of the rumors, I guess about this movie. Yeah, yeah, like you're saying, of which there are many and it's really interesting. Watching the lessons from the screenplay video, I learned that apparently I read a different version of the script and I don't remember doing that, but I say that in the video, so that must be true. Seven, so there's structural things that are interesting here. There's style and I feel like style is like probably the most uh, easily accessible place to start when talking about like auteur stuff, especially with someone like Fincher. Um, but there's also, yeah, I want to talk about themes and tone. As we've talked about, it's it's horrific, but there's also like moments of levity and like comedy, I might even say. Um, but so so starting with style, and for me, that's that's usually cinematography, editing, momentum, etc. It's really interesting to watch this movie, as you were sort of saying, Brian, knowing where modern day Fincher is, where everything is tightly controlled every camera movement is stabilized by a computer afterward. Uh, there are no non-motivated camera moves by which like, you know, in a modern film, the camera only moves if the actor in the scene is moving. So 
you're crossing across the room, the camera's gonna pan. You sit forward in your chair, the camera tilts up with you, you're walking and that's when you get a dolly move. You don't have something like a J.J. Abrams who two people could just be sitting down, <laughs> you know, one's trying to get recruited into Starfleet and so you're sitting in a bar and the camera is turned and there's a light shining so there's a lens flare and J.J. Abrams is behind the camera and like tapping on it to make sure that it's like shaky. Uh, <laughs> That is not Fincher. <laughs> that is not Fincher. Fincher is like very, follow all the rules of filmmaking to a T and then get a computer in to do the rest of the alphabet. I don't know if that <laughs> metaphor fell apart. But what's interesting in Seven <laughs> is that that isn't in place yet. And so there aren't computers to stabilize every shot. There are kind of these unmotivated camera moves. Uh, like, you know, I think when Somerset's at the library, the camera is kind of like circling around him as part of this, like, you know, the music video montage of which Fincher loves to do and does like two or three times in this movie. Um, but it's also still like, you see the things that Fincher is still really good at coming out where uh, the blocking and how the, the characters move in relation to the camera is like so... It's, I just love it so much. It's so good. The every frame of painting video and the other way is wrong covers this uh, immaculately well. So if you haven't seen that every frame of painting video, go go watch it. Um, but just like the way when Somerset and Mills and the police chief are like in the office or going over, you know, Somerset's explaining these are the seven sins, where the cameras, uh, how the camera moves with the actors where the actors are staged the distance between all of them it's just so good and i just love it so much um is my thought and that's the where i'm going to end this monologue of gushing about just the framing and fincher framings yeah it's well deserved and i think something that struck me watching the movie this time um were what i would call like fincher cuts where just like these really sharp edits where you'll get a phone call and we don't get to hear, we don't hear the phone call. We don't, we do, they pick up the phone call and then cut to murder scene. And, but we, but, but the flow of the movie is telling us a phone call probably means another murder has happened. We don't need the conversation about it. We don't need to see them getting there. They're just already there. They've already been there for hours maybe. Um, and, and the scene is not explained to us right away. We, we get to like learn about it kind of, through context clues um and he, you know the the full scene of like the greed murder is not revealed to like the end of the scene and there's just something so masterful and tight and sharp and confident about those cuts and i that happens throughout the movie i think with every new murder it's the same approach there's not a slow in and out we just we're just there um and i think that it felt like this was you know, a precursor to even maybe too tight uh, of an editing style later on in his career. But I just, I, there's something so confident and sharp about it here. And I just really appreciated it as a viewer. It's just nice to not have my time wasted and, and to like feel like I, I'm intelligent enough and the movie respects me enough to put things together, you know, two plus two, I don't need all the transitional, you know, content between these scenes. Mm -hmm. Oh, then sometimes a phone call is just, it's not even my desk. 
um, which I love that moment. Um, <laughs> that like this movie, comedy. yeah, no, I mean Fincher is Fincher's movies are funny. Like he makes com he puts comedy in his very dark movies. You know, but I mean the Marquis de Chade is oh, so amazing. Yeah, I just is. rewatched that scene. <laughs> um, and um, but yeah, I mean, I think everything you're just saying, Alex, like there's there's so much confidence in the filmmaking. And sometimes it's a lack of a cut, like where Somerset asks Mills, he's like, hey, will you go outside and send forensics in? And and Mills is like, wait, you know, and it's straight out of Signs of the Lambs, as you were saying, or it's similar to show, you know, it's the um, it's the sending Jodie Foster out. She's not like ready to see the autopsy kind of moment. Right. And then Mills is like, what are you doing? Um, but like it's on somerset's back of his head and then you see mills like look at him and then you could in another movie you would cut to somerset give him like a mm, you know i either like i'm serious or like hey you know get it whatever but you don't you just stay in that shot you know and i feel like that is it's nice that he's not that fincher's not over editing here right um but then you know you talked about um melodrama trisha and i think that there's an interesting and Alex, you said there's a beating heart in this movie. And I think I'm I'm kind of zeroing in on what the early Fincher versus Latter-day Fincher thing is and what I'm kind of missing. We don't need to get into like a big comparison about the whole filmography, but um, is, yeah, there's a melodramatic thing to this movie. And it's very much by design, because if you look at that finale, Howard Shore's score is like, Saruman is saying burn down the forest and you know like yeah, and like the dramatic shots are like these you know way from up top like in a movie that has not done that and um and then you know like where, where they kick in John Doe's door and the camera's pulling back just as the door gets kicked in and stuff there's a lot of really cool stuff like that but I think that almost helps sell the 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 story it's it's like how do you sell a story that's this over the top well you you have to sort of call attention to the melodrama a little bit right um and then interestingly the murders as you mentioned become less important as we keep going because that's not really what the movie is about and it kind of makes you forget it makes you, it stops you from planning out what the finale might be because you're not quite thinking about, oh, they're not sitting around going like, well, here's what is left and here's what might happen. And here, let's track down some people who are wrathful, you know. Um, <laughs> but then on, on the other side of it is like, when's the last time a Fincher movie had like a conversation with two people and then one of them cried? You know, it's, just, I was just like looking through his filmography. I was like, maybe Button is like the last, we have to go mm -hmm. back, you know, 15 years before we just get like a, a movie that just has like a sensitivity to it and a beating heart as you said Alex and I think that's what's so fascinating and kind of beautiful about Seven is that it's so ugly but it's also kind of beautiful and it's kind of hopeful and the the film the, the filmmaking is so gritty and so um taught and and sort of calculated you know and there, there's something really cool about the fact that this movie does all of that. Whereas I think Fincher, as he went further into his filmography, kind of just went to, I mean, I kind of the same conversation we've been having about Wes Anderson, right? It's sort of like taking the soul out of it and just doing the, the sort of the pastiche and like, this is the thing that I do. And maybe you'll find some, some, some beauty in that. And hopefully you do, because they're both great filmmakers, but it's not sort of it's not wearing its heart on its sleeve as much as as their movies in this era were. Mm. You, yeah, you mentioned you know just yeah two people talking scenes, and I think especially the scenes with Gwyneth Paltrow, oh, they yeah. they felt so just almost like live, organic, 
not controlled. You know, there's there's almost a Fincher style of acting that is very pleasurable in some ways in his later movies of just sharp, quick, like, you know, if the actors did this a hundred times, you know, a thousand takes and like this is where they like stop thinking and they're just doing it. But there's this kind of like a slow realness to a lot of those scenes with Gwyneth Paltrow that just feels less controlled, less tight, less perfect. Um, and I, and it was it was kind of a thrill to be watching a David Fincher movie and for that to be happening. It, it was like, oh, man, like that's it's a neat combination. I would love yeah, to see that again, you know, with the new Ari Alexa cameras, you know, like let's let's see a new Fincher shot this well, but with people that are allowed to, you know, be this organic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The scene where she calls Somerset on the phone, it's interesting. We, there's a little mini mystery that's set up in that scene. And then the next one where he goes to meet with her because Somerset knows, and we know, and the pacing of it is so slow. We know there's something that she wants to talk to him about specifically, but it's hard to like imagine what it could possibly be or what it could possibly have to do with the story of the movie. Right. So it's this kind of interesting deviation from there's all of this plot. There is the relationship that Somerset and Mills are developing, um, which feels like it's over here. And then we have, we meet Tracy and she's just so wonderful. Right. Um, and so such this like bright, beautiful spot in this otherwise terribly dark and grimy movie. You know, I was thinking this time she never we never see her outside. So like she never gets mm. the rain or the grime on her. Mm. She's always like clean and warm. She's like in a well-preserved place, um, usually in bed. Right. A couple of times we see her when she's sleeping and Mel's leaves and. The same with the scene in the diner when she eventually, she and Somerset meet, right? She, they're already just sitting there inside. Um, and like, yeah, she doesn't look like she's been outdoors at all. Um, anyway, the pacing of that reveal of what she wants to talk to him about, it just takes its time in this really human way. It's not efficient screenwriting, there's a lot of air in that conversation and talking around the point. Um, and it's it makes us lean forward because everything else is just like, what happened to this person? What happened to that person? What's the next thing? What's our next move? Um, and then it's like, okay, we're just going to sit here and listen to Tracy for a few minutes and just let her take as long as she needs to to tell us how she feels about something. And that's such a relief. Like it's that big exhale during that scene. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as as the scene is taking its time, like you're saying, they're still talking about theme. Like they're still talking mm-hmm. about this, yes. this place in which watching this, this time. This unnamed city. This unnamed city. <laughs> the same it, city as Fight Club? We're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is apparently just the worst city ever in the world like there's nothing (laughs) good happens here you drive outside and it's a horror show yeah uh the movie kind of beats you over the head with that but like you know what it's about like you know what somerset is dealing with and why he's you know it's very clear the struggle that's happening it's a very simple thing of just like i've been worn down by this place i've become cynical i need to like leave and that's what i've decided and I just love 
you know, I talked about this in the LFTS video, but like pairing him with Mills, like Mills has all these flaws and just all the all the perfect setup to watch Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman like go back and forth and and have this relationship. But ultimately Mills for all of his, you know, lack of intellect or knowledge or experience, like solving murders and all that stuff, he's the heart and soul of it. Like he's fighting for people like he believes in good at the end of the day and i just love that formula in in a you know a cop thriller detective thing of like this is as we've said many times if you're going to tell the story if you're going to do this genre make it about something and i love that this movie is about things and that it's executed in a way with that there's there's so much love and and really quick the the dinner scene like we were kind of talking about like you were saying, Trisha, where we sort of meet Tracy and get to go into the house. Uh, the moment where they're sitting and the train goes by and then they all crack up laughing. Like, I don't think that would be in a modern day Fincher film. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's a little awkward. It's not per- like it's a little raw. And it's that's... a cartoonish level of shaking. Like, how could <laughs> it possibly right. shake that much? From a right. subway? Like, that much. <laughs> right. So it doesn't quite make any sense. And the lab, like it's it's a big moment of like imperfection. And it's great because that's what the scene is about. Like that's a breakthrough for Somerset Mills. And after that is kind of when they start working together. But it, yeah, I just feel like that's an interesting example of a scene that I would be surprised to find in a modern Fincher film. Talking about this, you know, formula that you of course reference in the LTS video with True Detective, you know, buddy cop uh, pair up um, where you've got the kind of the almost like philosophical, worn down, cynical, almost like elder cop. And then the more just kind of ruled by his emotions, younger cop. Um, I don't know if the age that age thing is going on in True Detective at all, but, um, you know, wiser feeling mm-hmm. cop. and i think the casting is so important for those characters because i think both uh and you know in true detective but especially in this one with morgan freeman like like what he brings to the character is this like warmth for somebody who's so cynical like you you love to watch him and you love to watch him interact with people and you feel like there's like a depth and a life and a wisdom behind it all he's not just kind of like a cheap cynic like he's earned his cynicism and i think i i just really love watching a character like that because they're not pouty or cynical in kind of like a teenager way they are like i have lived a life i have gone through hell i have come to certain conclusions and i have actually a really coherent philosophy about it i'm going to talk about it it's nice to watch a movie with somebody really intelligent and wise, you know, espouse their philosophy of life. And it just, it's not actually that common a character archetype. And so seeing a really good one played by a really great actor like Morgan Freeman is just really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we don't have the line, but it's the kind of scene where you could have the line. Like I used to be like you, I used to be, young, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we don't, we don't need that line, you know, and I'm, who knows if it could have been in the script originally, but, um, but it's that kind of scene, right. Of just like, Oh, like, Oh yeah. You, if you work here another 30 years and then you'll, you'll end up like me. Right. And I was tracking, um, the, uh, I was tra- tracking just th- sort of the, like the optimism, pessimism 
scale for these four characters, you know, and it's sort of like, even though Tracy is, you know, I think like Brad Pitt referred to her as like the only sunshine in the movie or something, right? Like, but she is, it's almost like the, she's not the end of the optimism spectrum. That's actually more Mills in terms of just, he is actively pushing for like, we need to care about people. We can't be this way. We can't da da da. And then Tracy is optimistic but she obviously has these doubts, you know, as we see in the diner scene and then skipping over Somerset for a second, obviously we have John Doe at the other end of the spectrum of just like full pessimism, full, uh, this world doesn't belong, shouldn't exist. Right. And then we have Somerset where it's like, he's pessimistic, but then, you know, I always think of Michael, you talking about dark Knight Joker is sort of, and Batman are like vying for Gotham's soul. Um, you know, and it's sort of like, that is what this movie is doing with Somerset is like, yeah, he is on the pessimistic side, but can we pull him that one millimeter over towards optimism, you know, with that final line of the movie or just like those moments, um, where he is showing that glimmer of, of optimism, you know, I think that's really, it's really fascinating to, to sort of see where all these characters are kind of pushing against each other in this web. Yeah. You know, the first time I saw it, the final line of the movie, um, which is the Ernest Hemingway quote, we really want to be quoting Ernest Hemingway about optimism. It just feels like maybe not. Um, Guy enjoyed life. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I always thought of that line as being like not all the way earned by the story, like not really earned thematically. Like it's kind of a band aid that the movie puts on the ending to make you not walk out of the movie and be like, blah. It's a studio note. Right. That is literally what it is. Yeah. Shoot dough, cut to black. Yeah. Right. And I've always read it that way. <laughs> I was like, that's a nice studio note. Um, but actually re like watching it again and really thinking about Somerset's arc, there are examples earlier that he has not given up. And there he is pushed along by the story and changed by the story. You know, the first scene where we meet him, where he asks if the kid saw the murder, it's a perfect little moment because we see what real apathy looks like. We see what real cynicism mm. looks like mm -hmm. next to him. And he doesn't look that way, right? It's He doesn't, like, do anything. We never see him, like, go talk to the kids or, like, do anything, Um really different in his actions, but that glimmer of like compassion just slips out. Did the kid see it? You know? And it's that in his unguarded moments, um, we see that there is some kind of hope there, or at the very least, he has not successfully stopped caring, even if he wishes that he had. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's that line that, that Mills has where he says, I think you yep. want to believe these things. You yeah. want to believe. Right, exactly. So that scene hits at it. And the scene with Tracy, too, in the diner where he talks about how he, he talked his partner into not keeping the baby. Um, he has both of those things. He goes, I know that I made the right decision. Like, I know that in one part of my brain, right? And that's kind of the like more cynical uh, response speaking. But then he also admits, but there isn't a day that goes by that I don't wish I'd made a different choice. So again, he has, he is living with caring more than he wishes he did. And that's a painful place to be, but it's a character that we can sympathize with. 
Um, I think a lot of us care more than we wish. Like it would be easier if we didn't care, right? The movie touches on that too, right? The apathy is easier. Um, but caring is like sort of the obligation um, in this case. Now, you know, Mills, we get to the the parts where Mills gets himself into trouble a few times by being uh, absolutely ruled by his emotions. Um, but that's what care looks like, right? Um, he, he is passionately, too passionately pursuing what he believes in. And like, it is, even though it'd be easy to read the ending as being like, passion leads to destruction potentially, right? It, you could read the ending that way with how the plot shakes out and the choice that Mills makes at the end. But I think that Somerset's arc exists and like is studio note or not in the writing in other places too. Well, and I think the word caring clicks for me because I think optimism doesn't sound right to me as far as like where this movie goes. I don't think it goes towards optimism, but I think it goes towards despite it all still caring, not sure. letting yourself go all the way numb and just black out to the world. But like almost like admitting that I care and like acting from that place as opposed to essentially the lie he's telling himself, which is that there's an out for me. I can somehow leave this place, get out and stop caring is the lie he's trying to believe at the beginning of the movie. And the scene where he smashes the metronome is like the exam, you know, the symbol of that completely because mm. he uses the metronome to sort of order his life, right? And mm -hmm. sleep and like, it's literally how he sleeps at night. Mm -hmm. Is this like falsely constructed order that he has where he just listens to a metronome to block it out and not have to listen to all the screams and the horror that's happening outside in, in the city. In this <laughs> terrible <laughs> city ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but then he, you know, the events of the film and the passion, Mills's passion um, ruin that for him where he's no longer able to even use that to sleep because he finds that he does care too much. And so he, the metronome isn't helping him anymore. So he smashes the metronome. Um, again, it's lovely writing uh, even if, yeah, the ending doesn't, doesn't all the way, like get to a big climactic, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't feel like it gets to the big climactic decision for Somerset that you're, that we're used to seeing from a protagonist who is being pushed to the end of an arc. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that is where I feel like the studio had a good instinct there where, cause I feel like if the movie just ends with Doe being shot, cut to black, uncomfortable moment uncomfortable beat is what fincher wanted and then credits i'm not sure where somerset is you know i'm not sure where he ends up and i feel like i need to know where he ends yeah. up in order you know so so to me that last you know oh i'll be around um mm -hmm. like that's that scene is just, it, there's something about it that just first of all it's just like that very film noir like if the incredibles is 1960s and 2004 this is the 1950s and 1995 you know there's just something about like this movie is set in its own its own city its own universe its own time um but there's something about it that makes me go okay there there is still some you know as you were saying alex like a glimmer of a glimmer of hope a glimmer of wanting to wanting to continue wanting to push forward mm. and it is interesting to know that one of the endings was Somerset killing Doe because mm -hmm. I can yeah. understand that train of thought of its active protagonist and it's an act of, you know, 
almost like taking the fall for Mills so that the the people fighting for caring can win the day and go on fighting. But I also see how it's like not quite like nailing that message either. So it's just really interesting where, yeah, where the ending of this movie comes out. And like you're saying, just the, the plot maybe doesn't exactly point to where the theme resolves, but somehow I feel for me, it, it all managed to work, manages to work partially, I think because that little coda thing at the end is so fast. Like, there's the big like build up, build up, and then we get the little line punctuation, and then the movie gets out. And I think if it tried to stay longer and make a bigger meal out of that, it would be sure. very bad. The trial of David Mills. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's something that's really once again Fincher esque about the the quickness of that little epilogue, you know, and and, the, and there's something so elegant about just that really beautiful, very dark close-up shot of Morgan Freeman saying around, mm-hmm. you know, and it just, it just feels like perfect in its, in it's just to the point. Here's the quote that sums up the theme and we're out. And I, I really respect that about the movie for just, just kind of ending, ending right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No one shoots the back of people's heads like Fincher does. Like, yeah. Fincher can shoot the back <laughs> of someone's head. Like, Mm. With a camera. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, with a camera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Join us for the killer. Yeah, yeah. We're, yeah. we're talking about this movie. I'm like, what are we? What? Okay, so we're filming. Okay. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, we know we can get into the ending, but like there's, there's an interesting sloppiness to the ending that I think just kind of feels right for the movie. I always was sort of frustrated that it doesn't quite, work because it's everyone is guilty of it you know in john doe's eyes guilty of a sin and then dies for it right all the way up to john doe being envious you're talking the envy thing it doesn't work at all makes no sense (laughs) i mean it's it's, not envy i i I do like i do like that he is um that 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 is teased throughout the movie of of doe like i admire you and you know and then obviously mills being letting his emotions take over and stuff but whether it works or not, Doe is the envy victim. He, you know, he did a sin in again in his own eyes, and then he died for it. And then, what's the seventh thing going on? It's Mills is wrath. He says, "Become wrath," literally. But then he doesn't die for his sin. But in the past, Tracy did. Die. So there's like a sloppiness to it, right? Like it's right. not. I, I'm always thinking wait so tracy is one of the victims of the seven sins but she's not she's like a method to get to the so yeah it's like it's not as clean as you'd want from like a master villain plan of like every death is meaningful it's like she's more just like a means to an end which is disappointing but 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 i feel like there's something about and you know whether like the right ending was somerset killing uh doe because it's not out of wrathfulness because it's out of just him like not wanting doe to win, whatever it is right or it is and he's the surprise wrathful one instead of you know but like no matter what it's like there's definitely a part of me that wishes the ending was just like perfect and then there's part of me that just likes that it's sloppy and kind of off and doe is saying like what i've done will be puzzled about for years to come and here we are you know this many years later going like <laughs> but what exactly who was the you know well And as I sort of was talking about earlier, there's such an unconventional thing happening the whole like second half of the movie where they they get the drop on him by accident. 
And then there's that like amazing chase sequence, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's no longer a mystery of like who is Doe or like who is doing it. You know, we know the answer to both of those questions essentially right there at the midpoint. It's actually a little later than the midpoint. Um, but it, it, that it just sort of starts to spiral out of control where, yeah, the murders kind of are just, we're like rushing through those, those other two, two those two murders. Um, Pride, right, and lust. They were just like, we kind of just quickly rushed through those. And then Doe walks into the police station with his hands up. And then I'm I'm just like, what kind of movie is this now? Like, we're right. not going to catch him? And I think that that's really fascinating. Like, it's clearly what sets this script apart from other crime thrillers because the beats of the crime thriller are so familiar to audiences where it's like, okay, and then we're going to like – we're going to get the guy, but then it'll be revealed that it's surprise. It wasn't him. There's like another mastermind of the whole thing. It's the last person we'd expect, um, you know, or, and then there's a big confrontation when we go to pick up that guy. And then there's a big standoff and it's none of those things. It just be kind of comes this weird mind game and you're never quite sure what is going to happen. It's like, well, they have him in the car. Like, right. well, they have him in the police station. Here he is. Um, what could there possibly be left to do? And I think that disorienting feeling is part of the thing that lingers with you after this movie, where it's like there's there's a subversion of the genre that is also unsettling to people who watch a lot of this genre or have a sense of how it's supposed to go. So it's not just like how the final confrontation shakes out. It's the whole like pacing structure of the second half of the movie. Yeah. It's yeah. Almost become a thing that I forget is unique about this movie, but I do remember that like, that's part of what makes this ending so thrilling. It's like you're saying the the bad guy turns himself in and you're like, well, wait, that's, that's not how this works. Like, now what's going to happen? And it's like cool to be in a third act, not knowing what's going to happen. And the it also reminds me that the other LTS video in which I mentioned seven is the one on the dark night. And I think there's a lot of inspiration for the Joker there, the Joker turning himself in on purpose, like all of that. It's cool to see that kind of take its first full uh, form in this movie. And it's so I, I find really compelling for all the reasons that you're saying. Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking, hearing you guys talk about that, just while I was watching the movie, I was, it was striking me how many films and TV shows and uh, video game, like aesthetics, like come, I think out of this movie, I think this movie really, I don't know. There's, there's something that Fincher laid down here that both from a story perspective, like these, you know, the, the idea of throwing the audience off kilter with these kind of surprise, you got the bad guy too early. So what now uh, that's been off repeated. And then we've, then we've got just like, you know, there's that kind of like nineties grunge aesthetic in the opening and closing credits. And there's kind of just like a way that I don't know, like things are written by the bad guy in the notebooks. And I just feel like I've seen, I've played enough like video games as like a detective where you find a notebook and it always looks like it's from seven. You know, if it's, if it's in a bad guy's apartment, I just, there's, there's an aesthetic in this movie that I think it just has way more impact than we realize. Um, and I, and mm-hmm. every time I watch it again, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like did this movie kind of make this popular and make this the thing. Well, and that's kind of what I meant earlier when I said that like the saturation of 
this movie in pop culture kind of ruined it for me in some ways because right. I was like able to roll my eyes. I was like, oh, now they found some unhinged ramblings. Oh, <laughs> right. now they found right. the, the makeshift dark room and like, oh, yeah. here it is. And But yeah, this is not, I don't know if it's the first, first origin of all of this stuff, but it certainly is one of the most iconic examples of some of these um, things that are become convention now, but at the time felt, yeah, novel and upsetting. Right. Yeah. As they were going through Doe's apartment, I was flashing back to the Batman and remembering yep. how frustrated oh, yeah, I was of like, oh, that's this it's the seven scene that you're doing Does here. Isn't there somebody with like the eyes in the Batman too? Like the 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 picture with Oh like, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. It, but it's like yeah. the bat mask is kind of like yeah. over yeah, their face. Like, but like exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um why don't I move to lessons and say what lessons we're gonna take away from seven? Alex, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, yeah, like we've been talking about, uh, Somerset is a great character. I love this character. And I think part of what makes him such a compelling character for me is it's it just, it's the great writing of a character says one thing and then does another. And it all feels right. Like it all feels deeply consistent to this full human being in front of me. And there's great examples. You know, I think there's a scene where, um, yeah, Somerset's kind of leaning back in his chair at a little typewriter. His boss is coming in, you're trying to encourage him to stay on the case. Somerset's still pushing for like, nope, two days, two days more or whatever. I'm out of here. Goodbye. And then I think following that scene, I may have gotten the order wrong, but the, the library sequence comes afterwards or shortly afterwards where he spends all night like mm -hmm. researching, scanning documents and and we're sort of like, OK, what's happening? He's he's on the hunt for information about seven deadly sins. And it resolves with him, you know, in the office early in the morning, putting an envelope on Mill's desk with all these papers. And it just it's so beautiful to show in this one sequence somebody who's stating, I don't care. I'm out of here. Not my problem. Who then goes and like cares so much. He like does Mills's job for him and put that envelope down and it just, and nobody, nobody talks about that. It's just shown to us and it just feels, it's just a beautiful character that you get to watch, say one thing, do another, and it all adds up to a really lovely three dimensionality. Yeah. Yeah. Also, like you're saying, it's a really interesting casting. Like occasionally I'm like, wait, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt were in like a buddy cop, like detect thriller. <laughs> like, interesting. Right. Uh, yeah. Richard Schiff shows up briefly at the end. That's fine yeah, for you, right. West Wing fans. Um, yeah, cool. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, um, so I'm obsessed with the midpoint fit foot chase sequence in this through the apartment building. Um, it's amazing. Like, it's amazing. You love a good chase. <laughs> oh, it's a, a foot chase, too. I love a foot chase. Um but it's so complicated and disorienting and nightmarish. And the score is just going like, like, and it's so tense because of the way that it's shot and how like the POV that we are in, right? We, we only can see basically what Mills and Somerset can see, or we're only following them. And so we're catching like glimpses of, Doe as he's like running away in his 
very 1950s raincoat and hat. Like uh, you look like a CIA agent from like a, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, he's, we're like given such limited like glimpses of what's happening in the geography of the building. Like we don't know anything really about it. And um, I don't know. I was studying the way that it was put together this time and, and that's like a ton of shaky handheld camera that feels like really non-finchery in a way that I think rules. But yeah, just, you know, the shots were chasing Doe, um, but Doe is also shooting at you and will like will kill you if he gets a chance. So it's not just a straight like he's running away. It's that he's going to stop and hide around a corner and ambush you maybe. And you're in this difficult environment that's full of corners and doors and windows, rooftops, lobbies. <laughs> we're outside. We're back inside now. Uh, now we're back upstairs. I thought we were downstairs already. No, we're going to go down this fire escape. Then we're going to fall off a thing. Um, then we're out in the street. Uh, what street? I can't tell. It's all rain. It's all mud puddles. Like there. Now we're down an alley. What does does the alleyway? Is it a dead end? Nope. It goes around a corner. Here's a truck. Like it's just <laughs> so disorienting. Uh, and it's amazing. Like it's it's this labyrinth. Um, of just an absolute like horrible conditions in which to try to chase a person uh, who is also trying to kill you. And you're never going to see his face ever, right? That's the other thing is that you desperately want to see his face and you're just not gonna. Um, even when he has a gun to your head, apparently. Um, I was like, I feel like you could just, I mean, he's going to shoot you anyway. Just get a look. He sees enough that he tells that like, you know, the the police person that could draw a little sketch artist right. of like a really, a really funny little thing of that yeah but yeah anyway um i'm gonna go back and watch it probably many more times because i think it's an amazing sequence uh and yeah yeah so and if you're if you can only watch five minutes of seven that's (laughs) probably the five minutes you want to watch yeah (laughs) is anyone surprised that i picked the action sequence (laughs) where no one actually gets hurt it's the good one yeah yeah, it's interesting like because yeah like you're saying it's so tense because you're with mills for so much of that and as you're saying you have that established fear that i would have when chasing someone of like i'm gonna run around this corner they could just be there ready to shoot me like i feel like i don't see that dramatized in movies very much Mm -hmm. and so there's so much of that as you're saying that's making you like tense about like what's gonna happen it runs around the corner and then there are occasionally like one maybe two shots where you do see john doe running ahead and for those moments it works to like flip the mode that i'm in where before i'm like no don't don't go and then you see you get a shot of john Rowe, john doe running you're like oh wait no speed up go, go, you gotta go, go catch him, him. Yeah. and so like even just like the artful use of like playing with that perspective keeps it like yeah the emotional dynamics high and yeah i love it and the like editing the editing is just like quick enough mm-hmm. where you can sort of understand visually what you're looking at but not how it fits into the whole thing um in such a way that you can get your bearings it just keeps you just enough off balance yeah it's so it's so good see and it's like you're saying it's shaky it's not perfect i don't think you could have planned that sequence to be perfect if you did it, if you were trying to do it perfect from start to fit. Anyway, anyway, I'm excited about the killer. We're going to talk about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brian, what's your lesson? Yeah, we talked a little on Girl with the Dragon Tattoo about how Fincher can, he'll sort of raise a question and then 
withhold the answer for like a few seconds. Um, and I think it's the Screencraft uh, episode on Dragon Tattoo where he talks about like the original, pulling up to the house, there's the house. And then in Fincher's, it's pulling up, you know, Daniel Craig leans forward, he looks, he sees something, the cut to that, just like those little moments of what is that? And I'm re- I was realizing how much we get that in Seven like uh, I think Alex, you pointed out the greed victim where we're in the office, we see Mills, we get a few hints of what happened. And then we see the overhead shot. Uh, Trisha, you mentioned the, the diner scene with Tracy, like what's going on? What does she want? What does she want to talk about? What, you know, and then it, when we're in the scene, why are we here? What is this? Um, and then I think the, the best is the, the help me reveal mm-hmm. where it's, you know, Oh, wait a minute. Let me dust here. Then uh, call the print lab cut to print lab guy doing his thing. And then he goes, Oh man, cut to mills saying, honestly, have you ever seen anything like this? And then we get to help me. Right. Um, And then I think that extends to the plot itself where we're not doing the horror movie thing of showing the murders. I was like, Oh, this movie is saw, but from the detective's point of view where they're just Mm -hmm. seeing like what happened afterwards. Right. Um, And we're not even really doing the thriller thing of someone's walking down the street and then they get nabbed into a dark alleyway or something like that. And then we cut to, you know, the the detectives the morning after. Um, We're just learning the detect. We're just learning the information as the detectives are learning it, which means we are always leaning forward. We're waiting for the next clue, which makes it feel that gives it that noir, that modern noir feel more than anything else. Um, Similar to Rear Window. We're just, we are locked in the POV of Jeff's apartment. Even when we see things that Jeff doesn't see, we're still seeing it from the apartment. We're only given the information that we can get from this one specific point of view. And then that even extends to the finale where it's not a big shootout or a chasing. It's just, it's still a mystery. And the climax is finally all the like final questions are answered right up until that very end. And I've, you know, every movie is three hours long now because here's what every major character is doing. Here's what every minor character is doing. Here's what the antagonists are up to. Here's what's going on over here. And it's just like that, can be just overwhelming compared to this like taut mystery where I'm just focusing on things. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, lesson is, you know, I've talked about how good a a good dramatic question is, which can keep a TV show going for seasons and seasons, but I'm also really appreciating how compelling it is to have those smaller questions too, that just keep you engaged from one minute to the next. You know, I was thinking that feeling when you're reading a book or a screenplay and you go, Oh, and then your eyes start to, you yeah, just want to go to the bottom of the know, page. Yeah. Right. And you're like, no, 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 no. Cause that's not how they wrote it. That's, they want me to read this sentence next and that sentence, <laughs> but I got to get to the bottom of the page. And I feel like that's what Fincher is able to do a lot of times with, with the editing. I mean, sometimes it's in the script, sometimes it's, you know, in production, but it's whatever it is in the final, piece there is a lot of those moments that just make me lean forward um like daniel craig pulling up to a big house you know (laughs) wanting to see what that next little what the answer to my little micro question is Mm -hmm. yeah i that was literally going to be my lesson and he did it amazingly so i've i have nothing to add (laughs) uh, 100 percent. i agree you could have just you say that to all the people who go like (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's my way of getting out of it uh, so yeah, I, yes, a hundred percent, everything you said. And so just to add on another thing, I'm going to circle back to what we talked about, that there is comedy and levity. Like I was watching this yeah. with my partner and there were moments where she was like, this is so disgusting. This is 
like unbearable. I can't believe this is happening in this movie. And then like five minutes later, she was laughing. And like, mm-hmm. it's crazy that this movie can have that, but I feel like it, it shouldn't be. And we've talked about before, like your characters should smile at least once in every movie, like humans smile, even like messed up humans. Um, so I love that this movie takes the time to give people a sense of humor and have a sense of humor itself like that injects life into it, which I appreciate. Yep. Ah, okay. Well, what else have you guys been watching? It's been a minute since we've done one of these. So I, I, I want to know what everyone's been watching. Alex, what have you been watching lately? <laughs> um, I checked out the movie God's Country uh, starring Tandaway Newton. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was a Sundance movie this year or earlier this year, I guess. And uh, I really liked it. It was beautifully shot. I think it's, t- oh, yeah. it's supposed to take place in like Western Montana, like during the winter. Um, and it's just got this great, just gorgeous mood to it. And it, you know, it's slow and takes its time, but I didn't mind it. I was just really enjoying kind of soaking in the ambiance of this like desolate, beautiful, wintry place. Um, but really the, the main reason I loved it is because of, uh, Tandaway Newton. Like she's, she's just like, it's, it's just, it's really wonderful just to get to watch her in every single scene just be an amazing actress and it just it just you know the plot has some developments and the way it unfolds I, I i did bump on on some of the plotting um but as far as just like a mood piece with gorgeous cinematography and just like a a plus plus actor at the center of it it's definitely worth a watch so yeah god's country it, is now yeah streaming. it's kind of a it's kind of a thriller um it's, yeah about this like i don't know like a rural crime thriller i guess you could call it but it's really like yeah slowly paced there's sort of this mystery around who she is and her whole backstory and um yeah it's great and really kind of touching on just like a lot of just uh unspoken you know dynamics you know in american culture and history and you know, the West and how how did we end up even end up here? Like this is this our land? It, it, there's a lot of, you know, themes that are explored through this very simple story. So, yeah, very interesting. Nice. Cool. OK, Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched both seasons of Yellow Jackets, um, which is a series about a girls soccer team who survives a plane crash in the 90s and has to survive in the wilderness. Um, and then it's also set in present day as we see the women who survived the the earlier events of the show and how that's still affecting them. And maybe they have their own dramas in the present day. Uh, it's Melanie Linsky, Juliette Lewis, Christina Ricci. Uh, Elijah Wood shows up in the second act as just the most Elijah Wood character. Um, and then a bunch of actors you wouldn't know by name necessarily, um, especially the the younger cast. But they're all just they're they're great. And the matching they do between the younger versions and the older versions is just like amazing. I'm just like, wow, that like hair and makeup is so good. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. It also goes to some very dark and twisted places. Um, so, you know, if you can handle seven, you can handle yellow jackets. But like, just go in knowing that that there's going to be some some seven level stuff that that occurs as they are surviving through the wilderness. And let's say maybe not in the uh, not in the, the sanest of places. And maybe there are some some dark forces about <laughs> question mark. Interesting. Huh. But 
a blast. I had <laughs> such a good time watching. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I've been hearing about it, but didn't never really knew what it was about. So it's really interesting to hear. And now I'm I'm curious, and we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm also worried, <laughs> but curious. Trisha, what have you been watching? Speaking of a blast, I watched the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem movie. And I thought you were going to say how to blow up a pipeline, but go ahead. No. <laughs> no. Uh, and oh, what a delight it is. Um, I really, really like this movie. I went in with basically no expectations and it's just a heap of fun. Like I, it's so, you know, I watched a little of the cartoon in the nineties, um, but none, I've seen none of the other feature length versions of turtles movies. I don't think. Um, so I just kind of was like, all right, take me on a ride, everybody. And it's so fun. It's like, I don't know. It feels really modern and like that kind of into the spider verse across the spider verse way. Um, it's like the writing is really smart and quick. Uh, the vocal performances are hilarious. The soundtrack is like, Slaps. It's so great. It's Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, baby. Great. Yep. The, the, um, their score before the killer. So yeah. we'll come back to that. If you didn't know that Jackie Chan plays Master Splinter, he does. <laughs> um, it's it's so great. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, I I there's like it's a really well written movie. And the action scenes are a delight. And the dynamic between the turtles is really fun. It's great. Like, just, you know, it feels very Gen Z, like, or for Gen Z, or even whoever their younger brethren are. Um, definitely made by millennials. Like, the soundtrack will tell you that right away, too. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's awesome. Check it out. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. Nice. I've really I've listened to the score many times. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see it. I recently visited some friends. Uh, and we had just like a little weekend in Chicago. One of the nights they were like, let's watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I was like, I'm going to play Starfield. And so I sat next to the TV with headphones on playing a video game, watching them watch it. And wow. they had so much fun. I was like, that looks like that Michael. was probably a really great movie. You're you're a <laughs> character that only exists in movies. <laughs> <It's> truly. <laughs> I have just realized about it. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I've been watching Community again, and I am Abed in so many ways. Uh, <laughs> is that your what are you watching? It's actually not. So I finished Better Call Saul. How? What are we at? We're an hour and 20 minutes in. I finished it about an hour and 25 minutes ago. Uh, I finished <laughs> Better Call Saul. And it was really interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of hype around it. It's the prequel to Breaking Bad. It follows the character of Saul Goodman. I didn't know what to expect going into it. Breaking Bad is a show that I highly respect and don't know if I enjoyed. Um, and so going back into that world, I wasn't wasn't quite sure what to be ready for. Uh, it's really, really good. The cinematography, if you can hang in there, there's some bold choices in the first two seasons, but every season it gets better. And I liked it more and more over time. Um, the what I wasn't expecting is like all of these supporting characters. So there's Saul Goodman, which is a returning character, obviously, but there are some new characters. There's also other characters from the show that you're following. Uh, it's just like delightful. The writing is really smart. If you like con man stories and heists and such, there's tons of it. Um, and so it just manages to somehow balance like being a cool prequel and doing some of the cool prequel things you want with being a story of its own 
and unfolding in kind of a similar Breaking Bad way where you see all these at the beginning that's like, why are all these dominoes sitting here? And I guess they're going to fall and hit something eventually. <laughs> and by the end, they're like. Um, so it was really good, slow, but great at, like subtext. And you're getting into the head of every, everyone. It's one of those experiences like Breaking Bad where you're like, I just watched someone like apply for a job and it was the most stressful scene I've ever seen. Like it's super like slow, but it ends and I'm like, do the next episode right now. I need more. Mm -hmm. So it's really compelling. Most compelling of all, in my opinion is, uh, Rhea Seahorn, Rhea Seahorn, Kim Wexler is a new character that's not in Breaking Bad and she's amazing. And she's the reason she and Nacho are the reason I was so into the show. And I, she deserves all the awards. She hasn't gotten enough of any of the awards that she needs because all of them is the answer. Uh, mm. Anyway, so Better Call Saul, I think my stance is I think Breaking Bad is probably objectively, measurably better, but I enjoyed Better Call Saul exponentially more. Nice. Not to get into too much of a tangent, but there's a weird thing that Better Call Saul does where it's, a lawyer drama over here and then it's a breaking bad prequel over here and then it goes like seasons without really like those two things meeting or they'll meet like every season finale or something and it's really fascinating i i don't know that that, that it was the right choice i feel like maybe that should have just been two separate shows but it when it does come to as you said when it does come together it's like it wasn't an accident like it feels like oh this was all here for a reason it was all planned and and yeah it's a show that gets better the more like the more you watch it yeah yeah so that's what i've been watching yeah okay well this has been our conversation about seven kicking off our Atur autumn fall season next week we'll be back with shutter island uh the martin scorsese film uh he has a new one coming out obviously killers of the flower moon and so we're doing shutter island another thriller another bright shiny happy thriller so fun so far uh yeah I'm like halfway through watching it really yep yep will trisha make it to the end of the season <laughs> it's, it's, i still a member of the podcast uh, it's so much you guys <laughs> why are our greatest auteurs all the darkest people i've ever met <laughs> yeah. i think that's a question worth like investigating maybe we can get yeah. into some of that in in shutter island uh great yeah yeah and Prometheus is there waiting for us toward yeah. the end of the season. And that'll be a nice. <laughs> Huzzah. <laughs> if you want to help us make more episodes, head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon where you can support us and get access to exclusive episodes like our recent Rare Window episode where we dive into a little bit of auteur stuff and Alfred Hitchcock. And I watched the movie for the first time, except not. I don't know. It was cool. It was a cool exploration. And I enjoyed that episode a lot. Uh, so. That, as well as the full schedule to Autour Autumn, are over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Calleros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode for Shutter Island. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.